If you want to go ahead and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to challenge you as we uh, work through this letter, um, it's pretty obvious where we leave off each week, where we'll pick up that next week. And so read ahead, study ahead, um, think through some questions. Maybe there's some things about it I would enjoy if you're reading ahead and you have some questions, shoot those questions to me. That way we can make sure that I'm covering those things that need to get covered so that each of these texts and each week uh, will be as clear as they can be and as profitable as they can be for us as well. And even if it's after a sermon that I preach, you have lots of questions. Uh, ask me those questions. It won't be embarrassing to me. Well, some of them may be embarrassing to me if, it was a, if I butchered the text. But uh, otherwise, ask those questions. I want us to learn and grow together as we work through uh, this letter to the Second Corinthians. Uh, today I want to begin, though, by talking about affliction. And I just wonder what comes into your mind as you hear the word affliction. Uh, for each of us, it's probably a little bit different, but last week we gave some uh, synonyms for that, ideas like oppression or trouble, tribulation, pain, suffering, the idea of trials that would come our way. These are the things that we tend to think about when we think about affliction, the afflictions that come our way. I think of what's going on in Ukraine right now, and if you watch the videos and you see the pictures, it's affliction. There's death. There's devastation. There's grief, there's helplessness, homelessness, poverty. All of those things are involved in what's going on there. Our missionaries that Dustin mentioned, the Houghtons and the things that they're going through with their son. Uh, Crystal's uncle passed away this week and he was not a believer. That grief is affliction to the soul. Some of you live with chronic pain. It's affliction. I had the privilege of spending some time this morning with uh, some of the folks at Republic Nursing and Rehab for our service there. And as I just talked through some of these truths and the God of all comfort with them, I'm, I'm sitting there or I'm standing there watching them in wheelchairs and knowing that they live their days in affliction. Every day is full of trials. Some of you live with not chronic pain, but chronic jerks in your life. And uh, maybe those people are the affliction uh, that you deal with in your day to day. Some of you have been abused, you've been exploited by others in your past. And that is an affliction that we deal with. What I want you to, to know is what you already know. Afflictions all around us, troubles all around us. I love Job 14 verse one nails it when it says, man is born of woman and lives but a few days and they are full of trouble. <laughs> These days are full of trouble and difficulty and affliction. And so, so today what, what I wanna challenge you with as we begin is, is whatever that affliction is in your life, and it may be something that's very present to you, something you were experiencing even this morning or last night, it may be something from the past that's just always lingering. I want you to, to figuratively pull it out of your heart and hold it and let God's word address it today. Let God speak into your life and into your affliction as we consider these truths together. But before we move forward into 2 Corinthians, I do want to step back and refresh our minds because last week we were introduced to the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, the God of all encouragement. He is the God who, who meets us in our affliction with His encouragement and comfort every time. And, and we could talk about reasons why that 
that happens, but I want to give you three, and, and these are relatively obvious, but why does he meet us in our affliction? He does so to comfort and encourage us because he loves you. He loves us. And he doesn't want the affliction that we're enduring to destroy us, and so he comes along and counterbalances with his encouragement and his comfort in a way that only the God of all comfort could do. And that, that's actually the second reason that he does it is because it's who he is. As we looked at last week, he is the God of all comfort. He is the Father of mercies, and that's what he does. He comes to us in our affliction, and he provides us with encouragement and comfort. Um, it helps us to see who he is. Our afflictions help us to understand more about the nature of God. Have you ever uh, noticed that when you go into maybe a jewelry store or when somebody pops that ring box open, that, that typically those, those, those jewels, those gems, the diamond is laid against black velvet, something dark? Well, why is that? Because, man, it makes it pop, doesn't it? And when the glory of our God's encouragement and comfort and character is laid against the darkness of our affliction, what happens? It pops off the page. We see it. We, we are enveloped in his glorious comfort when it's against the backdrop of our affliction. And finally, what we talked about most last week is he brings us through affliction and comforts us in our affliction so that we can encourage and comfort others in their affliction. It's not meant to stop with you. You get encouraged by God so that you can encourage others. It's discipleship. It's what we're called to do. And so today we are going to conclude Paul's introduction to the letter to the Corinthians. And he's going to detail some of his own affliction uh, as he just shares with them personally. And so if you would please follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 1 verses 8 through 11. For uh, we do not want you to be unaware or ignorant brothers and sisters of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us on him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Father, we ask now your blessing on our time. Spirit, we ask you to work. Comfort the brokenhearted. Strengthen the afflicted today, we pray. Give hope to the hopeless. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul begins with a, a somewhat well-known phrase to him, something he uses elsewhere where he says, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be ignorant. 
In other words, uh, stop and listen. We want to inform you of something that's of importance to you. It will be of importance. I'll add this in. In the remainder of the letter that we're going to study together, you need to understand what Paul is saying here. But there are a couple of things that we need to get beforehand because he says this, the thing that he doesn't want them to miss, the thing that he doesn't want them to be ignorant of is this, that the affliction or the trouble that he and others experienced in Asia. Let me get a couple things out of the way. Who are the others? Paul uses the we here. Uh, well, we already know if you go back to, to the first verses that Timothy is with him. And so Timothy is certainly in the we. And it could, it's possible that Luke would be involved in the we at this point. And we also know Paul always had people coming and going. He always had groups of people around him. And then he would send some off to do certain ministries. And so uh, we don't know exactly who it is, but we do know that he had companions with him and they were involved in this affliction. Where did the affliction take place? Asia. Now, it's not Asia as we think of Asia today, uh, but remember we just came off of another series where Jesus writes seven churches, or two seven churches, these seven letters. All of those churches were in Asia, what was considered Asia at the time. So we're talking about Ephesus and Pergamum and Laodicea. These are the churches in Asia. So this is where Paul is. This is where he is experiencing this affliction. How does he describe it? He writes about it and says it's an excessive burden. The idea is that it's, it's something that is, that is crushing them, something that is so severe that it feels like they're being crushed, pressed out of measure, is how the King James reads. In other words, there's no measurement on the scale for how great this burden is. Paul, Paul, the sufferer supreme, says, I don't have a measurement for this one. I haven't suffered this much up to this point in my ministry. So it must have been bad. I like this line in, in the movie Home Alone where Kevin is uh, wanting to watch the movie with his Uncle Frank and the rest of the group. And his mom says, if Uncle Frank says the movie is bad, then it must be really bad. And that's the idea here. If Paul says the suffering and affliction is bad, then it must be really bad. Sometimes I wonder why that stuff pops in my head when I'm preparing sermons. I, I don't think that's probably of the Lord. Uh, it's just... <laughs> It's just all of the things that I've fed my mind in the past, uh, but it works. He goes on to say that the group, they despaired of life itself. They actually thought it was the end. They thought the final chapter was done for them, time had come, uh, and, th and then that, that bleeds into verse nine where he writes this indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, that can be taken um, Literally, because they could have been in a position where the judge was about to give them the sentence of death, or it could be taken figuratively that, hey, we just thought the time was up. It depends on the situation, and we don't exactly know the situation, but we're gonna, we're gonna take a few stabs at it here. What were they facing? What are the details? There's three, three main suggestions that people give. Maybe it was a psychological affliction that they were enduring. Just emotional upset. If you think of Paul's history, he had plenty of opportunity to be upset emotionally. He was betrayed in so many different ways by so many different people. All of the burdens and the things that he bore of the churches and of the ministry and of the disciples, 
could have been crushing him at that point. Even think of what's going on with the Corinthians. He's writing to them because they're at odds. He's emotionally upset and compromised. So it could have been a psychological affliction. It could be an illness-related affliction that he's dealing with. As a matter of fact, you go later in this letter, when we get to chapter 12, it's where he's talking about that thorn in the flesh. And we don't know exactly what that was, but there was something that was plaguing Paul, and he said, Lord, please remove it. And he asked three times, and the Lord says, no, I'm not going to remove it. Paul endured great physical illness-related afflictions throughout his life as well, or it could be, third option, persecution-related affliction. Some people take this and they, they, they look at the time frame and they try to figure out and say, is this when they were in Ephesus? And you may remember this story and, and, and one of the, the businessmen in the city of Ephesus got pretty frustrated with Paul and then his name was Demetrius. He was a silversmith and he made idols. And when Paul and company came into town and people were coming to Jesus, they stopped buying the idols and he's losing money. And he brings a mob together and they come to the town council, the town hall, and, and the guards pull Paul and companions away, and Paul wants to go out and talk to him. No, you're not going, and there's this back and forth, and it could have been a disastrous scene. It could have led to their death right there in the middle of that room. So, so it could be that situation. Others suggest it could be what Paul writes about as the Ephesian imprisonment that he writes to the Philippians about. We don't know exactly what the situations are, but here's the thing. We don't really have to know what they are as well. I love the wisdom of God's word, and sometimes it doesn't give us the details because God doesn't want those details to cloud us from making the connections to our own details and lives. It leaves it open-ended so we can simply look and say, well, I can relate to what Paul's describing. I can relate to seasons of my life where it felt as if I was being crushed. Some of you know what it is to be afflicted to such a degree that there are no degrees to measure anymore. And there's no words to put to how you're going to describe this to somebody else. Some of you know what it is to face the darkness of death. Some of you have experienced closing your eyes and thinking as you close them, this, this might be the last time I close my eyes in this world only to open them somewhere else. Some of you know what it is to face down an enemy so evil and dark and strong that your strength is no match. You can relate to what Paul is describing here. Betrayal of a friend. Getting stabbed in the back by somebody. David writes about that in the Psalms. Oh, it was a friend who betrayed me. How much worse is that? What is it today that, that you're holding in your hand and saying, this is the thing that, that crushes me. This is the affliction that I'm thinking about. That list can go on and on and on. Earlier I highlighted three reasons that God comforts us in our affliction. But here in verse 9, we find an answer to a broader question that we often ask, and that's this, why, why does God bring affliction into our lives in the first place? Why does he do this? Now, now that question often gets asked this way broadly in our society. Why do, good, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, let me answer that one very clearly and plainly. There are no good people, 
right? We're sinful. We live in a sinful, broken world. And so bad things are gonna happen around us. That's the, the answer to that question. But God does bring affliction into the lives of his children. Why does he do it? Well, Paul gives us the answer here, and, and I don't want you to be ignorant of the answer because understanding this can change your life. It can truly change your perspective on the bad days and the things that happen and the things that come your way. Paul's realization in verse nine is this, but, he says, it's a key word, right? Contrasting. But that, that affliction was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul writes down this beautiful truth for us. God brings affliction, even deep affliction, death at the door affliction, even death itself affliction, so that we will stop relying or trusting in our own selves and start relying and trusting in Him. Boom! There's the answer. At least one of the answers that we find to rely on Him. And so Paul and company evidently they have the same problem that I have. And the same problem that, that you probably tend to have, prideful self-reliance. Prideful self-centeredness, prideful self-sufficiency. Paul and company, and this present company included, have had the tendency at some time to think, God, you can just sit this one out. I can handle this. This won't be that big of a deal. It just so happens that today, my Bible reading has me in Judges chapter six and seven. And in Judges chapter seven, comes on the heels of the battle of Jericho. If you remember Jericho, they marched around the walls and did all that crazy stuff and blasted horns and yelled and did all of those things. And what happened? The walls came down. They didn't really even have to raise their sword and they went in and raided the town and took everything. And after that, they move on and they say, oh, what's the next town on the agenda? Well, it's Ai. And so they say, well, it's not as big as even Jericho, so let's just send some of our guys out. And they send some of those guys out, and what happens? They get beat. Some of them died. And the army comes back, and Joshua rips his clothes and falls on the face before the Lord and says, what happened? What did happen? They didn't rely on God. Nobody ever prayed to Yahweh about the next battle. They became self-sufficient and self-reliant and didn't realize that there was sin in the camp. God wasn't going to bless their endeavors. Achan had taken some things and hidden under his tent in, from the Jericho battle. They became pridefully self-reliant and God, God calls them on it and they pay a price. This text right here, this line is written and preserved for me, I believe, and maybe even sometimes me alone. I desperately need this. So many days, I arrogantly, I wake up, I, I shower, I dress, I start my day, I eat, I, I make phone calls, I prepare sermons, I do ministry things, I counsel people, I go through, I come home, I eat some dinner with the family, watch some TV, go to bed, and get up the next day and do it again, and then realizing that in none of that did I ever cry out to the Lord and say, I need your help with this. And it never crossed my mind in that 24-hour period that every breath of my lung and every beat of my heart was absolutely dependent upon him. And I am thankful. And let me just 
Say, I am thankful that despite my arrogance, he's gracious and he's merciful and he works. Despite my self-reliance in those moments. But what happens is when the affliction comes, when the storm clouds roll in, sometimes we even have the audacity to say in that moment, God, what are you doing this for? I don't deserve this. You know what he's doing in his grace. He uses the affliction to say, you've lost your way. You've lost your way. He's reminding us that we need him. We often are so thick-headed, short on memory, that God brings affliction to remind us that we're weak and he's strong. And that's what he wants us to get. And so, my friends, today I encourage you, stay reliant upon God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean to your own understanding. And let me just add this in. Do not lean upon your own strength either. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Do not put your reliance upon yourself. Do not put your reliance upon man. Trust in him. And when the affliction comes, I would also encourage you, don't stiffen your neck, but soften your heart to the God who loves you, the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, who even in those moments of affliction is wanting to do something so personal and special in your life. We can trust those promises. But, but what specifically does Paul mention about God's ability, his reliability and trustworthiness? How does he back this up? Oh, we can rely on God. Well, he could have gone and said, well, remember how he provided manna for Israel in the desert? Every day, he'll provide your daily needs. Or remember how he parted the water so they could, they could walk through on the dry ground and he'll, he'll make a way for you. Uh, he could have talked about how the, the widow that, that is there with Elijah and she has the oil and, and she's about to starve and eat the end. And he says, no, no, feed me and then we'll, we'll fill up these things. God will provide. He'll make sure that you have the money or the leper who was healed, the blind who were healed, diseases and broken hearts, that's what he does. All of these things would be great things for him to say, look, trust in the reliability of God. But no, no, Paul goes for the juggler. Paul goes for the kill shot and says, no, he's the God who raises the dead. It doesn't get bigger than that. It doesn't get more outstanding than that. That's the big one. He says, that's who he is. This is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. That's who we're relying on. That's who we're depending on. And that just spills over into what Paul just cannot help himself from doing. Where does he go? He overflows with praise. Verse 10. He delivered, he writes. He, he delivered. He rescued us from such deadly perils. Horrors is another way to think of that. The horrors that we faced. And he will deliver us. On him We've set our hope that he will deliver us yet again. Paul's testimony is this, and in the hour of death, the hour of death itself, God intervened. 
delivering and rescuing them, illustrating the point that, that, that was made last week that in their affliction, he came with encouragement and he came with comfort. But what I especially love about how Paul lays this out and what I believe he's trying to convey here is something bigger and broader. It's this idea that he, he delivered us, he will deliver us, and guess what? He'll do it again if he needs to do it again. He doesn't quit on his people. I have uh, had the opportunity to talk with a lot of people who are in the throes of the horrors and affliction of their life. And I'm never able to, in those moments with certainty, assure them that God will deliver them by, by healing their cancer or by saving their abusive father, or stopping a Russian invasion, staying the hand of an executioner. But, but we can be assured that on the other side of death's door, on the other side of the horror of affliction is our true and final deliverance. On the other side of the affliction is resurrection. <laughs> New life. Is there anything, is there anyone who can provide any greater hope than the hope of resurrection? There's nothing. We do everything we can technologically and medically in our world to stop death. But death will come to all of us. And there's nothing that brings hope to death other than resurrection. And he's the God who raises the dead. So maybe your situation will turn out like Daniel in the lion's den. <laughs> and God will stop the mouths of the lions and, and create this incredible deliverance. Or those three Hebrew men and the, the, the fire will not consume you and you'll walk out unscathed. Or maybe it'll be like Stephen in Acts 7. And they're throwing the rocks at you. But before that last rock just splits your skull and ends your life in this world, you see Jesus standing to welcome you into eternity. So whether our God enters the fire with you, shields you from the flames, or stands to greet you as you leave this world and enter the glory of his presence, it is he who rescues you. It is he who will deliver you. He alone is our hope. And so I have to ask the question, is he your hope? You're here today. Have you put your hope in him? Or are you hoping in something else? Has someone else or some other thing promised you eternal life and resurrection after death? I can't think of anything or anybody who could promise that apart from the one who's accomplished it, our Savior Jesus Christ. Today, lean on him, rely on him for your salvation. Cry out to him. And all of this beautiful truth then culminates in a bit of discipleship that happens in verse 11. Paul actually invites the Corinthians into his affliction. And he offers them an opportunity to minister to him. He writes this, you also, you Corinthians must help us 
by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing or the gift that's granted to us through prayer by the prayers of many. Last week I mentioned that most of Paul's letters begin with a, a portion of, of thanksgiving uh, where he talks about what he's thankful for in that church and oftentimes included in that thanksgiving is a prayer that he prays for that church at the beginning of the letter. You can go check that out by reading the beginning of all of Paul's letters. You'll see that. But, but this letter doesn't have that thanksgiving section. It doesn't have that prayer that's there. Paul gets right to what's going on and he wants to just move right into the content of his letter. But what's cool about this is, is though Paul offers no prayer in his introduction for the Corinthians, what does he do? He invites the Corinthians to pray for him this time. He invites the Corinthians to join in his affliction by praying for him. Now, as a Bible nerd, I love that kind of stuff. Those are the unique things that we find in God's word that are just beautiful and rich. Now, now I believe, as we think about verse 11, I love how the New English translation captures. I think they get the true spirit and offer a, the best translation here. Here's what they say. As you also join in helping us by prayer. Now, you may notice a slight difference there. What do they say? They say join in helping Join in helping. The act of joining in helping is a reference to what's already been talked about, God's work of deliverance. God is doing the work of deliverance and rescue and he's inviting you Corinthians, he's inviting others to join in helping him with your prayers. Your prayers are joining in that rescuing work that God is doing in the lives of other people. What an amazing invitation to participate in the work of rescue that God's doing by praying. So the God who rescues, the God who raises the dead uses our prayers to do those very things. Now I wish, I really wish I could explain the complexities of that to you. Offer you some deeper explanation how or, or why he works that way. Why does he do this? But scripture doesn't really provide us with those deeper explanations. The God who needs nothing listens to the prayers of the people who need everything. And he uses them to accomplish his purposes. So we pray for the afflicted. We're invited to pray for the afflicted. And God says, I'm going to let you join in me in the rescue. And the purpose of their prayers he says, is so many others will give thanks to God. Literally, it's, it's this idea, the faces of many will look up and give thanks to God. So the picture is that the, the faces of the Corinthians are turned upward, glorifying God for the deliverance that they've, they've prayed for and God has provided for Paul and companions or anybody else that would be included and they're praising God. This introduction begins with Paul saying, we wanna bless God. We wanna bless the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort and it ends with the saints faces upward blessing God for the deliverance that only he could provide. Can we just start our implications right there? <laughs> Today, tomorrow, throughout the rest of this week, 
turn your face to God and bless him for the deliverance that he's brought into your life, for the deliverance that you've prayed for for others and you've seen him bring it into their life. Bless him. Today we, we bless him with these songs that we've already sung, that songs of deliverance and recognition of who he is and what he's accomplished. What incredible glory. Today, tomorrow, and every day after, turn your face down. Bow your head to the ground in humility and ask the great rescuer to rescue other people. Ask the deliverer to deliver other people. They're in your life. This is the work of discipleship. This is what we're called to do for others to enter into their world, to enter into their needs and their affliction, praying that God would bring deliverance for them. So we make lists, right? You have a prayer list where you, you list out people that you know who are under affliction and you pray for them. You join in with what God is doing in, in bringing comfort to meet the affliction. Also take it a step further because if this is the work of discipleship, it also means that we have to get to know people too. How can we know the affliction of somebody if we don't know that somebody? If we're not out getting to know new people. If we don't know our neighbors, how can we pray for them? If we don't know our fellow church members, how, how can we pray for them? How can we join in with what God wants us to join in with if we don't even know their name. And then beyond that, we don't know that they're suffering. We don't know that there's struggles in their family. We don't know that they had a diagnosis. And let me flip that on the other side. How can we invite others to do the work of discipleship in our lives if we're not open and honest with the things that are afflicting us? If we're in our prideful, self-reliance. Oh, God may know, but what does God tell us to do? Share with other people. We are called to invite other people into our affliction because God doesn't just simply send, you know, uh, rainbows into our life that, that somehow form miraculous things. He sends the body of Christ into our lives so often to help bear those burdens and bring the encouragement. And so don't be so self-reliant and prideful that you don't share the things that you're struggling with with others. Finally, Paul wants us to understand the pattern of a life that is dedicated to following Jesus. That pattern is going to play itself out nearly on every page of 2 Corinthians as Paul deals with the suffering and affliction of life. What is the pattern of a life of following Jesus? It's this. There's affliction, there's death, and there's resurrection. Isn't that the life of Jesus? Affliction, death, and resurrection. And Jesus says, hey, I want you to follow me. Well, what are we following? Who are we following? Affliction, death, and resurrection. Following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. A few months ago, I introduced uh, this pattern to you in the form of, of a letter J. It's called the J curve. 
And Amos, if you don't mind to throw that up here, I, I put this, I stole this from somebody. Uh, this is Paul Miller, though, who, who put this together, and so I, I added in the attribution to him. This is Jesus' life. Jesus died. He was afflicted. He died, and then there was resurrection. And if we're going to follow Jesus in that life, guess what? We're going to suffer affliction. We're going to die, and there's going to be resurrection. This is what Paul's talking about here. This is what's going on in this particular text. Following Jesus is to experience this particular pattern in our lives. It's why uh, Paul highlights here in these verses and many passages to come, he says, listen, we were afflicted, we were, we were dying, we were near death. But there was a purpose, what happened? What was the death that Paul died? He didn't die physically in Asia, did he? But he died to himself. He died to his self-reliance. Sin died that day as he recognized, no, I've got to put my trust fully in him. And what came as a result? New life, resurrection, new truth that Paul would live out. Here, Paul's affliction took him to the point of death, the death of self-reliance, and then came the deliverance and resurrection that, that by the way, can only come from the God who raises the dead. That is a death that we all die every day. Only to find new life. Every time I die to myself, there's new life. There's resurrection. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He says, how completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. There's the satisfaction we look for. To bring it back to the issue of prayer, a sure sign of my self-reliance and my need to die to some arrogance and pride in my life, a sure sign of that is a lack of prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is me saying, God, I can't do this. Lack of prayer is me saying, God, I got this. I don't need your help right now. I don't need you to intervene in my life. I can handle this on my own. And you wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that, not with my own words, but I say it nearly every day, multiple times a day with my actions. Just have a seat on your throne, Father. I'll get this one. How crazy and arrogant, how stupid and idiotic. But beyond that lesson, please understand that it is through the affliction and the death that resurrection comes. There is no resurrection apart from death. C.S. Lewis said, nothing that has not died will be resurrected. And we can think that from our physical standpoint. We can think that, look, if I'm going to experience the resurrection of Jesus, it's going to require my death. But we also have to recognize that in our day-to-day -day lives. If I want new life, it's going to come by way of affliction, death, and resurrection. It's going to be in the pattern of a J. It's going to be following Jesus in that pattern in my day-to-day -day life. God is using affliction to bring new life to you. What an amazing truth. 
What an amazing God. There's a purpose in your pain. So as many say, don't get bitter, get better. Follow the pattern. See what he's doing in your life. Trust his plan. The, the J, the J will always rise. Always. And so today, let's turn our faces to him and bless him for the deliverance we've had, the deliverance that will be to come. Would you bow with me? If your hope is not in Jesus, if your hope is somehow in your ability, your goodness, your good works, that's a self-reliance that will damn you to hell. You must turn and cry out to Jesus. Only he can rescue, only he can save. It's an act of humility that I challenge you with today to, to, to cry out and ask Jesus to save you. And if that's you, we, we want to talk to you. We want to help you. We want to answer whatever questions you would have. We want to know of how God's working in your life. And we want you to share that with us. And you can come even now. We would love uh, to do that. We, you can come after the service. But for those who are here and you say, my hope is in Jesus, most days, in, in that broad sense, but, but so often I put my hope in myself, I put it in my self-reliance, and, and I'm going through some affliction right now, and, and I'm in that battle, then, then my encouragement is to you to turn to him, trust in him with all your heart today. Confess whatever needs to be confessed and repent and, and just turn directly to Jesus. And if that's not even you right now, you're not in the throes of affliction, you know people. Everyone in this room knows somebody who's dealing with affliction. And how amazing will it be right now to just cry out to God on their behalf. Join in with the work that he's doing to pray for the afflicted. I'm gonna give us a couple of moments here to just pray and deal with the Lord and the Spirit in the way in which that Spirit is working in our hearts. Father, as a pastor and as a friend to so many in this room today, God, I know that there are many who are facing affliction. I know that the trials that some are enduring right now are great. As I look back, I know that, Lord, you've brought many through the sentence of death themselves. And God, I thank you for the promise of deliverance. I thank you that, that as, a, as a pastor and as a friend, I don't have to have the strength, the wisdom, the ability to save. That's what you do. I do have to have the strength and the wisdom to point people to Jesus. And that's what you call us to do in discipleship. So you call us to be, we're to pray, we're to speak words of encouragement. And so God, help us to be about that work. Help us to be about that work in our homes and in our church and in our community. Places we work in our neighborhoods. As we see the afflicted, to see them as Jesus sees them. And to share hope. And so God, I pray for those who are here today who are being crushed. They're being pressed beyond measure today that they would find relief. 
and hope in the truth that you are using the affliction because resurrection is coming. What a promise. What grace. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you for delivering us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.